May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So it is back to school time officially here in the Phoenix area. My daughter Elena starts school this week. My son Elias starts school next week. And so I've been thinking about the back to school season. And for about two decades, every fall, starting in 1998, a team of professors at small Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin, published a list that they called the College Mindset List. Now this list was originally started as a tongue-in-cheek way to remind professors that their cultural references from the 70s and the 80s when they were hip with pop culture no longer applied to their incoming students in the class of 2002. So from that original list, here are some of the things that they said about the class of 2002. For these students, music has always been on compact discs or CDs as the kids call them, and most of them don't even know what an eight track player is. Homes have always had cable television available, and none of your students remember the day when there were only three channels on the TV. For them, the Vietnam War has always been in the history books. It is not something that they remember. And, you know, there were several things on the list. Those are some of the highlights. As a representative of that generation of people who were teenagers in the 90s, there are a few things that I take exception with on that original list. For example, I do indeed know who Ronald Reagan was. I had, and in fact, still have a record player, and I love listening to records on vinyl. And I don't think that Star Wars is cheesy or dumb because of the terrible special effects. So they published this list every year from 1998 to 2018, and then a team at Marist College took the list over, and they made it a little bit more ideological. For example, here are some things that are true about the newest college students. They have navigated their last two years of high school during the middle of a global pandemic, the likes of which we have not seen as humanity in more than a century. When I think about my own last two years of high school, they were hard enough without that extra pressure. So I feel bad for the students. I can't imagine what that must have been like for them. These students have been deeply affected by the protests against racism and racial profiling that have happened across our nation for the last four, five, six plus years. This has been very important to them. They have watched the news, they have paid attention, and it's something that they're concerned about and would like to solve. They're also very interested in using technology to continue to grow business. They think business and technology are going to continue to fuse, and they're specifically interested in using technology to correct what they see as a a problematic industry, which is fast fashion. Cheap clothes that people buy and just wear for a year or two and then get rid of. Young people apparently are against that and they think they can use technology to make that better. So whether we're thinking about technological changes like compact discs, whether we're thinking about changes in pop culture like Star Wars, or whether we're thinking about generational shifts in ideology, 
We can't deny that the times are indeed changing. And lists like these are interesting for at least a couple reasons. First, they remind us how narrow our perspective on the world truly is. Think about this. A hundred years ago, when the cathedral that we are sitting in now was built, fewer than a third of the homes in the United States had electricity. By the end of that decade, by the end of the 1920s, that percentage had more than doubled to 70%. It's hard for most of us to imagine what life without electricity in our homes would be like. We take it for granted. We don't think about it anymore. And yet, that is a reality that has only existed for less than a century. Second, these lists remind us that we are part of an ongoing, unfolding march of humanity. We have a part to play while we're here, but we are building on the work that started long before any of us were here and will continue long after all of us were gone. What we see in front of us is not all that there ever was and not that there ever will be. So all of this is a question of our time horizon. How far we can see, what we see that's right in front of us, and how far into the future we can look and dream and imagine. We are quick to focus on the immediate to pay attention to the here and now, to look at those things that are right in front of us and become preoccupied with them, to worry about them. But again, that's not all that there ever was because it is hard for us to imagine what the future is going to look like. My kids cannot imagine a world in which every hard homework problem and every dinner table debate could not be settled with a quick Google search of the answer on a cell phone. Think about that. They have never had the experience of sitting there and talking about something for an hour and everybody saying, well, I don't know, and then after you get up from the dinner table, pulling an encyclopedia off a shelf to look up the answer. That is a foreign world to them, and yet that was the world of my childhood. And I never would have dreamed of the world that they are living in today. So we experience this tension, the pull that exists between what we see right in front of us and the world that will be far beyond us all the time as individuals. But theologian Jürgen Moltmann argues that we do this collectively as well in our communities of faith, in our churches. In the church and the power of the Spirit, he presents this tension as the struggle between thinking about church and thinking about Christianity. Because when we think about ourselves as the church, our focus narrows to what is right in front of us. We worry about things like how we're going to pay for the electricity bill, how we're going to fix the roof, if we're going to pick good clergy and good bishops who are going to keep the institution strong and healthy. But when we think about ourselves as Christians, our, our, our view becomes more expansive. We see ourselves as participants in God's unfolding mission to this world. And we see things a little bit differently. Now, friends, please don't mistake me. I am not talking about the very narrow focus on cultural Christianity 
that some people in our world are promoting today. In fact, I am talking about exactly the opposite. I am talking about an expansive view of what our role and what our mission is. When we see ourselves as part of the communion of saints gathered in churches and in homes all around the world, praying and worshiping together, when we feel that connection to the great cloud of witnesses of all of those people who have gone before us, who have pointed the way to Jesus and given us hope for a better present and a better future, what we do and who we are is bigger than maintaining a building or an institution because we are invited to share in God's work of caring for the beautiful creation that we all love and enjoy, of extending love and mercy to those people who need it most. We are invited to live into our true calling, to give what we have, including our very selves, away, and to stop worrying about protecting the here and now and what's right in front of us. We see this tension played out in our lessons today as well. In Hebrews chapter 11, when we get to that great cloud of witnesses that I talked about just a second ago, we see that Abraham is listed there. And the writer of Hebrews praises Abraham as a dreamer and a pilgrim. But when you read the book of Genesis, you realize that that was not a very straight path for Abraham because Abraham was a worrier. He went down to Egypt and had a sit-down meeting with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, one of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world at that time. And he was afraid that Pharaoh was going to think his wife Sarai was pretty beautiful and kill Abraham so that he could take Sarai as his own wife. So what did Abraham do? Do you remember this story? He lied and said, oh, this is my sister. Isn't she great? You should get to know her. He was worried. A couple weeks ago, we read the story about Abraham talking to God face-to-face and bargaining over the life of his nephew, Lot. He was afraid that Lot was going to be killed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that was coming, and he pleaded with God to spare his nephew's life. And here we are today reading yet another story where God shows up in a vision and is talking to Abram. And the very first thing he said is, Abram, don't be afraid. But what does Abram immediately do? He starts complaining. He tells God that he is childless, and he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. He's right back to worrying. And the words that Abram uses in verse 2 could be translated as either son or heir. But Abram doesn't stop talking in verse 2. He goes on in verse 3, and the verb or the word that he uses in verse 3 is unmistakable. It is heir. It's someone who takes possession of. See, Abram's not worried about a child, a relationship, a legacy, a way of life. He's worried about the stuff. He looks around at his gold and his tents and his camels and his servants, and he says to God, when I'm gone, who's going to get all this stuff? And God says, Abram, that's, that's not what this is about. You're missing the point. It's not about letting it all slip away. In fact, Jesus gives us this perspective in our gospel reading today. 
Jesus starts talking to his disciples with the very same message. He says, don't be afraid. In fact, don't even worry because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and everything that you need. So what does that kingdom look like according to Jesus? It starts with that very first statement. Don't worry about your stuff. In fact, take what you have and give it away. Let your life be a blessing to others. Second, be prepared because you never know the moment when the reality of God is going to break into your situation and everything is going to change. And finally, Jesus says to expect the unexpected, to realize that there is more to this life than what we can see right in front of us. Because if we only go based on what we see and what we know, we will end up like that household owner whose house is broken into in the middle of the night because he is completely unprepared for the thief that is coming. The kingdom that Jesus talks about is rooted in this tension between what we see and what we can't even imagine. And Jesus tells us, don't trust what you see. Live your life with an open hand and be generous and loving. Stay ready. Keep dreaming, and take your place in God's story. When Abram tells God about his anxieties, and he reveals that his focus is on the here and now, it's on the stuff that is right in front of him, did you notice what God does? He doesn't chastise Abram. He doesn't scold him. God invites him to come outside and take a look at the stars. This is a literal and metaphorical change in perspective. Abram, your focus is on this stuff down here, what's right in front of your face. Let me show you my perspective. It's up here. It's bigger and more expansive than anything you can dream of. And here's the good news for you, Abram. You have a part to play in all of this. There is something that I'm inviting you to do. So stop worrying about this and keep your eyes on this. Stay ready for what I'm going to ask you to do. And don't worry. See, God knows what Abram needs in that moment. It's not a stern talking to. It's not just more faith. What Abram needs is a different perspective a change from the focus on the here and now to the life that he can't even begin to dream of. This is the same perspective that we hear in one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 40. It is a beautiful poem of hope written to people who are living in the the calamity of exile. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out these starry hosts and numbers them, calling them all by name? Because he is great in strength, mighty in power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? 
Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will be exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we have those moments where we feel like Abraham, where we are discouraged and worried about the pressures of this life, the invitation that we receive is the same. We can't always see God's perspective, but we can look up and we can try to imagine a world that is different. 